0: As I sat down earlier in the week to prepare the message out of Romans, we're going to begin the great good news of Jesus Christ with verse 21 of the third chapter. And as I read and meditated and thought on it and began to do the background reading necessary to understand the force of the passage, I began to see that there's so much there that just needed more time. I sat down at my desk with a blank piece of paper to begin to write down ideas as they would come. And there was so much. I was just absolutely overwhelmed. And I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus on on that one great verse, verse 21. And my thoughts were were being pulled, were being called back to... This past week, this season of prayer and fasting that we had entered into as a congregation. And then I began to understand what was happening in me. I was frustrated in my ability to focus on a Romans message because I believe now that God wants us to talk about the fast as a postscript to it to tie up some loose ends, to bring some perspective, and then to chart our course, so to speak, as a result of the things that we have learned, and indeed that we are still in the process of learning. One of the issues that I want to talk about and address, many of you experienced and have experienced some guilt and and pain as a result of, is that you... set about to enter into a normal fast and if you remember our description of a normal fast that was one in which for 2 days we would abstain from any manner of food be it solid or liquid and just take water as opposed to a partial fast where we would you could partake of food and or water didn't make much difference but the goal was to enter into a normal fast and Many of you began with great vigor, with great purpose of heart to do that, but found very quickly that it was very difficult, and that your bodies began to rebel. they began to rebel in the in the in the uh, uh, means of headaches, stomach aches, blurry vision, dizziness weakness of many sorts. One woman told me that the roof of her mouth was burning. Lots of different physical manifestations. And what those manifestations were was that the body is saying, hey, what's going on here? It's feeding time. And though many of us are unaccustomed, to regularly saying to our bodies, hey, I'm going to give you rest for a season. Many of us gave in to the body yelling and screaming at us. And as a result of breaking your normal fast, you felt like, oh no, I let God down and he's mad at me and he's disappointed with me and I feel so terrible. Well, I got news for you. God's not mad at you. Isn't that exciting? How do I know that? Well, because the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This fasting experience was one in which we get to learn some things. If you remember, for three weeks prior to the fast, I urged all of you to enter into some partial fasts, enter into some kind of mini fasts to prepare yourself, especially if you've never fasted to get used to what was going to happen with your body. And those of you that did it were a little bit better prepared than those who didn't do it. Lots of things happen. In the midst of the fast, if you did fall short of your goal and you broke the fast midway, don't feel condemned. You're not a bad person. You're not a second-class Christian. I I really want you to understand that. But what you got an opportunity to learn is how fleshly and how dependent upon the flesh that we can be. And how body-oriented, how flesh-oriented we really are. And we only really get opportunities of seeing that when we enter into seasons of fasting, seasons of self-denial. There are opportunities for us to get visibility of how we are able to say no to really very legitimate desires and appetites for the sake of spiritual activity, intense spiritual activity. One fellow shared with me how he was doing really well in his fast through the whole first day Monday, And late into the night, it was, in fact, it was early Tuesday morning, somewhere around one or two in the morning as he was laying on his bed, he was in twilight sleep and he heard this voice screaming from the kitchen, eat me, eat me, eat me, there was something in the refrigerator that was screaming out for his attention. And his body just began to get all stirred up. He couldn't understand. He just thrashed around in his bed. He was uncomfortable. He couldn't get to sleep. One thing led to another, and he found himself kind of going to the kitchen, you know. (laughs) Opening the refrigerator and reaching in and chowing down. And this guy, you know, if you know him, and I won't tell you who he is, but you know, you would count him as a very spiritual man, a very godly man, mature in the Lord. But what, what, what he learned, he was confronted with some spiritual pride. As he broke his own fast and as, as he lamented over it, he realized that he was being very prideful. And God used it as an opportunity to show him that so that he could repent of it and he could say, Lord, Lord, forgive me for my fleshly attitudes. Another lady... Who had never fasted before she shared with me, really purpose in her heart she was going to do this fast. and as she entered into the fast, she's, she made it, I think, through the first day and into the second day, uh, she was uh, she 's an executive uh, business person with a lot of responsibility and so forth, and she was in a a, a very important meeting in her company with, her, with respect to her work. And it was, a, it was a, a, a long meeting, some four, four and a half, five hours. And it was in the afternoon, and they catered in lunch, oh. right? And so they brought in this big, big old table, big old trays of all this catered in food. You just smell it. I mean, you can smell it right now, can't you? <laughs> Ooh, smells good. <laughs> And uh, we had talked about, you know, don't tell anybody you're fasting. Don't let them know. It's between you and God. And so she's immediately in a bind. Everybody's getting up to go over to the table to chow down, and she's sitting at her place. And they say, well, well come on, let's, let's eat. And she says, well, I, I'm, I think I'll just pass right now. Maybe later. She found herself throughout that meeting getting up from her chair and going over to that table Three separate times, picking up a plate, standing before all that food, and saying no. And putting the plate down and going back and sitting down. She was thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. And then her husband unexpectedly brought some people home for dinner. God bless her. We see there are all manner of experiences those past two days of fasting. But for those of you that broke the fast, and you didn't want to, but you did, don't feel guilty. Just understand that we struggle with the flesh. And though you had some very real physical symptoms, that you may have been nauseous and sick and all those things, that's your body demanding attention demanding attention. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the second and third chapters, he talks about, well, he's, he's addressing the divisions there in the church in Corinth. And he's rebuking them roundly and soundly because there are people in the church saying, well, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Peter, and and I am a disciple of Paul, and Paul comes and says, we're all disciples of Jesus. Quit making up these factions. Quit following after men. Quit being fleshly. He says, I want to talk to you about very important issues. I want to talk to you about deep spiritual things. But because you're so carnal and fleshly, so flesh-led and flesh-oriented, so undisciplined in the flesh, he says, you can't receive these things that I have for you. That's a paraphrase of that passage. You can read it on your own and, and see what he says verbatim. But that's the, that's the heart of the passage. And when we enter into a fast, we get first-hand opportunity to see how fleshly we are and how body-oriented we are, not body of Christ, body of self, how the physical is there and presents itself and demands satisfaction in some very strong ways. And what I want to urge you to do is on your own enter into, begin to make fasting a regular part of your Christian life. So that you begin to develop the discipline, begin to develop the practice in your own life of arising above the flesh, of being able to say, down flesh of being able to say no to, again, very legitimate appetites and desires for the sake of short seasons of very intense spiritual activity. And as we begin to develop that ability to discipline the flesh, to not be body-oriented, body-led, but be spirit-led, then in other areas of our life where we begin to trip up or we have difficulties in saying no, we will begin to have developed the discipline of saying no to those also desires and appetites. Does that make sense to you? It's a process of learning. You say, well, is fasting for everybody? I think so. If we look into the the, uh, Gospel of Matthew, we looked last week in the sixth chapter, when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. In the very context of that preaching, he talks about things that ought to be normative to the Christian experience. He talks about giving, doesn't he? And then he talks about prayer. And I think that every one of us would agree that giving and prayer ought to be normal parts of the Christian experience, Christian life, normal regular practices. And in that same context, he goes on and he includes fasting. And he begins the, very, the section on fasting with the word when. He says, when you fast. I think there's a presupposition there that that his disciples, people who believe in him, people who are seeking out after him to follow him and obey him, are going to be people who not only give, not only pray, but are also going to fast on a normal basis. He reinforces that later on in the ninth chapter when Matthew writes, describes a discourse between John the Baptist's disciples when they come to Jesus and they say, how come your disciples don't fast like we do? And Jesus turns them and responds, and he says, he says, well, because the bridegroom is with them right now. He says, when the bridegroom goes away, then they will fast. But now it's a season of feasting. And that's a lovely picture of when Jesus comes back to get his church. At his second coming, how there will be no more fasting then either, but that there will be great rejoicing at the great wedding feast prepared for the church. The bride of Christ. So in the interim between his ascension to heaven after his resurrection and his second coming, it's a time for his disciples to fast. That fasting ought to be a normal part of our Christian life. And as it is, and as we fast, and as we use those opportunities when the body begins to cry out for attention and acknowledgement. and satisfaction that we use the dizziness, we use the headaches, the stomach aches, the cramps, the nausea, all those things to say, God, help me. Lord, help me. Strengthen me. And you're not going to do it overnight. It's a process of learning how to develop this spiritual discipline, coming to grips with it. So enter in regularly into seasons of fasting. If you read the lives of any of the great, great saints of the church, whoever did anything noteworthy of accomplishment in terms of expanding the kingdom, you always note in their life, very characteristic, prayer and fasting. John Wesley, one of the great reformers. Fasted two days a week, regularly, for years and years. And he required all of his associates, all the people associated, men and women, in in ministry with him. In the early Methodist movement. To two days of prayer and fasting. He required it. It was mandatory. If you were part of his movement, if you were affiliated with the early Methodists, you had to fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Or Wednesdays and Fridays, I forget One of those two days. Charles Finney. We talked about him a little bit last week. You read his journals. You read what he records about the great revivals that the Lord worked mightily through him. He says prayer and fasting. Significant. John Calvin. Jonathan Edwards. All the great preachers and teachers of the past two centuries. The early church. When there were great times of spiritual renewal and revival, Prayer and fasting was always a significant part of that. You see it over and over and over as you read and study church history. And so indeed, in our own lives, it ought to be a regular part of our spiritual exercise, our spiritual experience. For the purpose of intense spiritual activity, intensifying our focus on the Lord. When I'm hungry, my mind is brought back to the Lord. When I get a headache, my mind is brought back to the Lord. Because in the normal course of a day's events, very seldom do I normally focus on the Lord. Very seldom am I forced to cry out for his help and his grace and his strength in my life. Except when I'm fasting. That's part of the normal human experience. So fasting is essential to us. Someone said to me Friday night, the service, when are we going to have another church fast? I said, when God calls it. In the meantime, you start fasting on your own. And you purpose in your own heart, do your own business with God. God, what would you have me do? How would you have me fast? Once a week? Full day? a Partial fast once a week? Twice a week? Once a month? Twice a month? How, God? But begin to allow this spiritual discipline to affect your life, to impact your life, vitally important. Were any of you as you fasted, did you notice yourself getting testy? Anybody crabby during the fast? A few. As we had talked last week, that you you could expect that as you weaken yourself, as you literally deny yourself and deny your body satisfaction, how there was going to be some real rebellion, there was going to be some things begin to surface in your life that God wanted to deal with, God wanted to heal, God wanted to free you of. Anger, old hurts, bitterness, resentment, maybe even some apathy towards a situation or a person. But these things would surface in the context of a fast. And you would find yourself wanting to excuse those things, wanting to rationalize them, wanting to write them off and say, well, I'm just hungry. It, you know, when you get hungry, you get crabby. That's right. But how well you deal with the crabbiness speaks of how strong you are spiritually, how well you are, are able to maintain and, and, and function. Sometimes people just lose it all together. Again, a, an insight and understanding of where we are spiritually, how well, how well we are able to involve ourselves in these kinds of things and maintain uh, a sense of perspective and balance in our life, an understanding of what really does control us down deep inside. I want you to turn with me to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. We looked at this passage last week, and I want to call your attention back to it, because it has a bearing on a couple of things that I want to talk with you about this morning. Isaiah describes, or rather God describes through Isaiah, The ideal fast, the things that would characterize a fast that God would choose, the things that ought to be evident, the fruit of which ought to be visible in the person's life, who enters into a God-chosen fast. We pick it up in the sixth verse of the 58th chapter of Isaiah, and God says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. He's talking about, I think, first spiritual release and renewal and then the ability to reach out to other people and begin to break the the cords of oppression, the the bondages, the yokes that, that we place on other people because we have them in our own life. We talked last week about unforgiveness about granting forgiveness or asking for forgiveness and how hard that is and how hard it is to really come to grips with forgiveness when it's either given and or granted. That's a kind of spiritual release. That's the kind of um, spiritual breakthrough that I think that that God describes through Isaiah in this sixth verse. And then he goes on in the seventh verse to spell out in, in clear, give us clear examples of the outworking of a, a spiritually renewed person. A person who is not being oppressed and who is not oppressive. As long as we're oppressed, we're going to be oppressive. When we're freed from that, we're free to go free others from oppression. Look how he describes this in the 7th verse. This is a continuation of the kind of fast that God has chosen. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? He cites four examples of ministry. They're clear examples of ministry that, that all of us are called to in different forms. It's not enough that we be released. It's not enough that we enjoy our own personal spiritual freedom. It's not enough that we be freed up in our own life to sit back and luxuriate in it and to enjoy it. God frees us up so that we can go and free other people up, so that we can go out and minister. As I said earlier, it's my job to remind you that you're the ministers. I'm not the minister. Do you know that? I'm one of the ministers. I'm the chief shepherd that says to the to the flock, look at you guys are supposed to go do the work of the ministry. You come here every week, and I've got to remind you that. And he sets forth the work of the ministry here in, in four areas. Too often in the church today, and sadly so, people come and they get saved and their life is transformed and they sit and they do nothing else they kind of luxuriate they kind of enjoy their freedom and it's not long before they're abusing their freedom because they've got all this new energy they've got all this power they've got all this freedom and they don't know what to do with it because it's not being cycled and channeled into ministry and they find themselves in trouble they find themselves backsliding they find themselves falling away because they've not become involved But Isaiah gives us four examples of how we can become involved and how we can reach out and minister to other people. I want to give you two illustrations, practical illustrations, of needs in our congregation. We have a ministry called 70 by 7. Many of you are familiar with it. It's a a prison outreach. Many of you have participated in it at various levels, Lots, lots and lots at the level of the Angel Tree Program over Christmas, where we distributed gifts to families to children of inmates many of you have gone on the outreaches to the various prisons and uh, places of incarceration to share the gospel and to uh... share testimony to witness many of you have been part of the worship teams and so forth to go and have witnessed men give their life to christ incidentally we just this past week, buried the lady who started the ministry, Marian Allen. Some of you knew her and probably were not aware that she died this last week of cancer. In fact, she'd shared her testimony here several months ago that she believed God would heal her, and certainly God has healed her. She's got the ultimate perfect healing. She's in glory right now, where I want to be. But we buried her this last week, and... uh, we're thankful for Marian. We're thankful for that God moved through her and gave her a vision for a, a prison outreach. But it's not enough that we send teams into the prisons to, to testify, to share the gospel, to encourage men. And, you know, we haven't even begun to address the women issue yet. We haven't even touched the women's prisons. We're just dealing with the men right now. But to see men come to Christ and get baptized, that's exciting and glorious. But it's not just evangelism. We're called also to, what, disciple, to follow up. And here's where the discipleship gets really, really difficult. There's a part of the prison ministry called the follow-up program. And in that follow-up program, we already have three men out of prison who are involved variously, some in, in living with people in our congregation who are being discipled and trained and and taught new social skills, uh, given jobs, taught how to support themselves and integrate themselves into society in a productive way. When, When men leave prison today, they leave with $100 and the clothes on their back and nothing else. And while some people would say, well, that's what they deserve, they should have known better, and they, they, they're reaping what they sowed. Well, that may be the truth. They may be reaping what they sow. But that doesn't deal with the issue of how do we get these people integrated into society. The rate of reincarceration, when someone exits prison, the rate of going back to prison is 80%. If you get out of prison, if you go to jail, if you don't have a strong support network ready to receive you when you get out, the chances are 80% that you'll go back. Because you have no skills, no abilities, no support system to keep you out and to integrate you back into society in a productive, healthy manner. And so we have this aftercare program as a feature of our prison ministry. And we've got five people slated to come out of prison with no place to put them. Men who've given their life to the Lord, men who've heard the gospel, men who have heard how wonderful the church is. No place to put them. Now here it comes. I need you to pray. You see, I know, I already know, that God has equipped this congregation. He already has in place people gifted and equipped to meet that need. Now, I don't know who they are. I know a few of them. You can talk with Steve Garfield and his wife Janet back there. They're one of the couples who have taken in one of the early three inmates, living with them. Steve is overwhelmed. He's promised two other people he'd help them, and I promised I'd help him. And I know that there are other people in our congregation just like Steve and Janet who are willing, who are understanding that God has called them. You just need to have visibility of the need. Because you're already willing servants, you just say, Lord, all right, thank you. Praise God. Send me. Isn't that exciting? Now, I don't want to candy coat this thing for you. I want you to know that it's hard ministry. It's frustrating ministry. Discipling a person with, who may, in fact, have very little in terms of social skills, work skills, Abilities to integrate themselves, very limited in terms of spiritual understandings. It's not a piece of cake. And I want you to talk to Steve after service just to get some insight, get some information. information. He's here. Talk to Larry Eisler, too. Those two men are largely responsible for trying to get this thing off the ground. But they need help. Don't sit here this morning and say, well, I couldn't be involved because my circumstances are such that, you know, I have such a small house and apartment and one little room. Um, It's obvious that God wouldn't be calling me because I have no room. Don't let your circumstances dictate ministry to you. We walk by faith, not by sight. I guarantee you that the majority of those men would be happy just to sleep on a floor that has carpet on it. If you understand the situation in which they're living now. If you've never visited a prison, go visit one. I've been in prison. I've been in solitary confinement. I know what it's like. It's terrifying. They need our help. And I don't know who you are. I don't know what people there are in this congregation that God has already equipped, has in place, to be involved in this ministry. Go talk to those two men. Find out what's in store. Pray and see if the Lord doesn't stir up in you a real hunger, a real conviction to become involved. There's another arena much similar but different. This is the arena of homeless and battered women and children. I don't know if you're aware of it. We have lots of them in this community. I have a vision for a ministry to that group of people. There are more and more and more husbands abdicating responsibility as husbands and fathers. More and more men who are falling down on their responsibility, walking away from families, beating up their wives and kids, and abandoning them. Women leaving for fear of their own life. It's a tragedy. And there's no place to put them. They're on the street. There are women and families and people in our congregation who are taking some of them in but it's very limited in terms of our capacity. And I absolutely refuse to succumb to the temptation to buy up and use property and houses to house these people because we're just entering into, in a deeper, le- a deeper level, an institutional mentality. We're the church. We're the ones who are to do the work of the ministry. It's real easy to buy some houses, to, to evict our tenants next door, and to use those houses to house people. But there's not going to be any real ministry going on in their lives. We just shuffle them off to another institution. The church is not an institution, it's a body. It's alive. It's gifted. It's dynamic. It's full of the Holy Spirit to impart to other people hope in their lives. And again, this isn't a very inter- easy ministry. You can talk to John Rosemary Woolheather about that. In fact, I've assigned John oversight of this. You didn't know that, did you, Rosemary? <laughs> John neglected to tell you. <laughs> Bruce Sheldahl is another man who's been working with the homeless, and he's brought in several of the women and their kids to our church, and has has provided them with clothes and food, put a few of them up in his his place so they could get a night's sleep. We need some some folks to say, "Hey, God, use me." And again, it's not an easy ministry; it's a very taxing one. It requires great sacrifice. It requires great willingness on the part of the person involved to really go the extra mile, sometimes the extra two miles. But I think that these are things that are significant and indicative of people who are seeking after God, that they're not content with enjoying their own personal freedom. They're not content with just having God restore them and heal them. They're not content with just having God relieve them of their cigarette addiction or their alcohol addiction or whatever. They're not content with God just restoring their marriage. They want to reach out. They want to do more. They're freed up for ministry. Just some thoughts. Please pray. Please take what I'm saying seriously. Please go before the Lord. Please pray and say, Lord, am I I to be part? If not physically, then as a prayer partner, as, as someone who can lend some kind of support, some kind of training. Maybe I have visibility of jobs, or maybe I can watch some kids. Maybe I can do something to help. Be praying. Would you please? Thank you. Shall we pray? Lord, we love you. But two short weeks and we'll be celebrating Easter. A great holiday on the church calendar. Time, Lord, of commemorating and celebrating and being excited for for the greatest event ever in human history the resurrection of you from the dead. Lord, it's on that that we stand. Everything, everything, Lord, stems from your resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we have nothing to stand on. Lord, that's one of the great tenets of our faith, of our belief that you did rise. Jesus, your word tells us that you went about doing good That you were empowered to do your Father's will, to reach out to a sinful and a broken world and bring people to know you. You didn't do it just with your words, you did it with your life, you did it with your body. And you have a body here now. Lord, you've told us that we are your hands and we are your feet, we are your arms, we are your legs, we are your heart and your lips and your eyes in your ears. And just as you went about doing good, healing and restoring people and giving them hope, Lord, you reached out to the downtrodden. You reached out to those who were lost and hurting and broken, to those who had no hope. They had no place else to turn but to you. And Lord, you ask us to do the same thing because we are your body, because you live in us, each one by your spirit. Lord, lift our sights, I pray. Give us vision for ministry. Help us, Lord, to see ministry as our prime call in this life and that our work is just a means of supporting our ministry. Lord, thank you for the season of fasting in which there was great great renewal in so many lives. But Lord, I pray that that renewal would not stop, would not stagnate that, Lord, you would continue the work that you've begun and that you would cause this great people to rise up in service in all manner of respects, Lord. We commend ourselves to you this morning. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and to the word of your grace in which we can be strengthened and built up that we might truly have that great inheritance that you've reserved for us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, we're going to have communion right now. I want to to encourage you now, as we receive communion, we're going to do it a little bit differently than is our custom. How many of you were here on Tuesday night when we received communion together as a congregation? Quite a number of you. Did you enjoy the way we received communion by passing it? Okay, we're going to do that again. We've been doing it all weekend.